This morning we're back in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. You know, I found that one of the great challenges of, of preaching through the Gospel of John is, is trimming the fat from the sermon at the end of every week. After spending hours of reading, praying, studying, outlining, and writing, I always struggle to leave a few concepts on the cutting room floor. And, and these challenges have been especially present this week as we turn our attention to the most important weekend in human history. As we come to the start of chapter 18, we move to the climax of, of John's gospel. Uh, these, these final four chapters are, are centrally focused on Christ's betrayal, trial, death, and resurrection. These final four chapters are completely dedicated to the cross. And we know the cross is the heart of the gospel message. You know, a few years ago, a young preacher asked Billy Graham, if you had to do it all over again, are there things you wish you would have emphasized more as a younger preacher that maybe you're emphasizing now? And without hesitation, Reverend Graham said, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is. The Apostle Paul would agree. You know, he relayed a similar message to the church in Corinth. He wrote, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." Now Paul says the cross is of first importance. That it's the gospel that we have received. It's the gospel where we stand. It's the gospel is how we are being saved. Yet sometimes we fail to preach, teach, and discuss Christ crucified because if we're honest, we're much more comfortable with a man-centered gospel. And if we were so inclined here in chapter 18, we could approach this passage from, from several, of, several of those angles. We could look at the, the greed of, of Judas or the self-righteousness of the religious establishment or the hypocrisy of Peter. Truthfully, we have ample material in these 27 verses because in so many ways our passage is a study of contrast. It's the story of a traitorous friend, a corrupt priest, and a fallen disciple. It's a story of collusion, backroom deals, abandonment, and the total absence of leadership. It's a story of the bleakest hour in human history. And so we could spend our whole time together focusing our attention on the sinful men surrounding the cross. We could talk about morality. We could talk about behavior modification. We could talk about their shortcomings. And we could preach a message along the lines of don't be like Judas, don't be like the Pharisees, don't be like Peter. And we may walk away feeling a little bit better about ourselves. Where we leave this place saying, man, I, I've made some mistakes in my life, but at least I've never screwed up like those guys. But we must remember... That that's not John's purpose for writing his gospel. John tells us that he wrote his biography about Jesus so that we would believe in Jesus. So therefore, when we read about this event, 
we should recognize these sinful men only as minor characters in God's plan for the sinless Savior. You know, against this backdrop of complete human depravity, we should see God's grace. In the middle of this darkest night, we should see the light of the world. And so as we work through this passage, we should see Christ as our sovereign Savior. As He was arrested, tried, and ultimately crucified, He was not a powerless victim. He was not a false Messiah, and He was not a lonely martyr. He was and is and always will be our sovereign Savior. Since we haven't been in the Gospel of John for the last couple of weeks, let's, let's do a quick recap of what's led us to this moment. In chapter 13, Jesus and the disciples shared a final Passover meal together on the Thursday evening of Passion Week. During their time in the upper room, Judas was identified as the betrayer and Peter was identified as a denier. Then Christ began a long final discourse, preparing His disciples for the next chapter. As they walked through the streets of Jerusalem in the dark of the night, He taught them, He encouraged them, He equipped them, and He prayed for them one final time. And when He finished His prayer, they stopped at a garden on the Mount of Olives, which was identified in the other Gospels as a place called Gethsemane. And they were apparently frequent visitors to this place because Judas knew exactly where to find them. So let's start reading in in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Then Jesus said to them, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one, lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a, a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? So first, we see that Judas betrayed him, but Christ was not a powerless victim. In verse 1, John provides a powerful bit of of foreshadowing as they they walk across this little brook into the garden. We should recognize that when Jesus walked across this little creek, He was probably facing a symbolic reality. Because up at the temple, they had already started their yearly sacrifices for the, the Passover. 
And so the massacre of these sacrificial lambs would run through that current day and into the next day. And we can't be certain how many lambs were sacrificed on this particular year, but we do have census data from 30 years after this year, and we know about 250,000 lambs were sacrificed that year. So we can assume in this year, in this moment, that it was still a bloodbath. And as they sacrificed these lambs, the blood would run down the altar and it would run into these back channels behind the temple, down the temple slope and into this very same nearby brook. And so it's probable that when Jesus' disciples stepped through this water to go on the other side into the garden, that they may have waded through water that was bright red with the blood of lambs from the soon-to-be obsolete sacrificial system. So there's a heavy bit of foreshadowing there. But Christ didn't waver. He walked through the water and, and up the slope to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives served as a sort of home away from home for Christ. We know that the Son of Man really had nowhere to lay His head, but something interesting happens at the end of chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8 in the Gospel of John. The last verse of chapter 7 says that when Jesus finished teaching the crowds, that everyone went to His home. And then the next verse, which is the first verse of chapter 8, says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And so it was a familiar place for Him. It was a place of, of rest. It was a place of, of prayer, a place of for privacy, a place of fellowship with His disciples. But on this night, Christ came for a different purpose. He didn't come for a moment of solitude. He didn't come out of habit. He didn't come by random chance. He came so He would be found. Look at verse 2. It says, Judas also knew the place. You know, if, if, if you were looking for me on any given day during the week, there's a 95% chance that you'd find me in one of several places. You'd either find me hanging out at home, working at the church, grabbing a few things at Target, or eating at Woodstack. Like normally I'm not very hard to find. I'm, I'm a, a creature of habit. Okay, So there's only going to be a few places that I could possibly be. But if I didn't want to be found, I would avoid all of those places. So understand that, that Christ goes to this familiar place because He wanted to be found. He was not hiding. He knew Judas was coming. And Judas shows up in verse 3 with a large traveling party. Judas pro procured this, this band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. He arrived, he's flanked by several temple officials and this group of soldiers to arrest Jesus. So the chief priests and Pharisees not only sent their officers, they also asked Pilate for some Roman soldiers as well. And normally the Greek word that's, that's used to describe this, this group of soldiers, the ESV uses the word band, other translations use cohort. The Greek word that's used to describe this group would, would usually indicate a group of 450 men. Now in this case, the term is probably used less precisely. You know, more than likely, this is a smaller group of soldiers that are traveling with Judas. But either way, 
Why does Judas need all this backup? Now, why are they marching through the night with torches and weapons? Why do they bring so many men to arrest one man? Well, it's because they knew they weren't dealing with an ordinary man. They knew they weren't arresting a powerless victim. And over the next several verses, Christ showcased His power through His words and His work, and they quickly realized their concerns were accurate. In verses 4-11, through 11, we see Christ take control of the situation with four distinct moves. First, He came forward for them. Verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward. Don't miss that. He knew all that would happen to Him. From the beginning, He knew Judas would betray Him. He knew the Pharisees would convict Him. He knew Peter would deny Him. He knew the Romans would crucify Him. Before the foundations of the world, He knew every gruesome detail. He knew every harsh reality. He knew exactly what would happen to Him. Nothing came as a surprise. Nothing was unexpected. He knew they were coming, and when they arrived, He came forward. He came forward. He walked towards His death. Second, He revealed Himself to them. Verse 4 again says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And so when we read that verse in its entirety, we find this strange juxtaposition. And we may be tempted to ask, if Jesus knew all that was about to happen, why did He ask, Who are you looking for? I mean, didn't He know that? Isn't that a silly question, if you're all-knowing? Understand that he asked the question to force them to acknowledge what they were doing. For example, if I ask my children, did you eat the last of the brownies? It's not a genuine question. It's a rhetorical question. It's a, it's a chance for confession because more than likely, they have crumbs on their shirts and chocolate around their mouths. You know, more than likely, this is an open and, and shut case, and I'm just providing them an opportunity to repent of their sin. And so in the same way, Jesus knew they were looking for Him. Jesus knew they had came to Him for Him, but He still wanted to force them to acknowledge the purpose of their mission. And you'll see Him do this a few times throughout this chapter. He's constantly posing this question, where do you stand with me. And so in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Now, now some believe Christ is only identifying himself as the one they were looking for, but others believe Christ is making a deeper statement, that he could have been making a reference to the book of Exodus. He could have been claiming the, that he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, that, that divine I am. So when, when Christ said, I am he, he could have meant I am the one that you're looking for, or he could have meant, I am God. And in this case, it's difficult to know his, his true intent, but we do know his answer sent shockwaves through the crowd, because verse 6 tells us, when Christ said, I am he, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. He said, I am he, and they fell on their backs. Now this is a really mysterious moment because John doesn't provide much detail about what made the soldiers fall to the ground. But the primary point here is not how it happens, but why it happens. 
their collapse reveals Jesus was not being arrested in weakness. I mean, think about this, this, this for a moment. He asked, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus. He said, I'm Jesus. And then boom, they are on their backs staring up at the night sky. His voice was so powerful it could summon Lazarus out of the tomb. And his name was so powerful that it could knock armed soldiers on their backsides. Third, he gave orders to them. So Christ asked them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And in verse 8 he says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus issued commands even to the soldiers who were coming to arrest him regarding his disciples. Even as he is being arrested, he cared for his disciples. He made certain that the soldiers didn't touch them because he had promised to protect them. And this raises a little bit of an interesting issue because in verse in chapter 6 and chapter 10 and chapter 17 when Jesus talked about the security the, the safety the protection of his disciples he primarily focused on their eternal destiny but here in chapter 18 he seems to be focused on their current well-being too and so we may wonder how these things are are connected well they are connected because that their physical safety illustrates their eternal security. Just as Jesus is in control of every aspect of the physical world, including the protection of His disciples from persecution in this moment, He's also in control of everything in the spiritual realm, including preserving His disciples until the final day. And then finally, He showed compassion to them. Apparently, Peter missed the memo about Christ's protection because in verse 10, he takes matters into his own hands. He comes out swinging. He draws his sword and he cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Now this is the first of, of many bad moves for Peter on the evening. And by the way, recognize that Peter was not aiming for this guy's ear. I mean, Peter was looking to split his head open. But he even messed up a surprise attack and he whiffed and he just caught his ear. But then something amazing happens. And we don't get this in the Gospel of John. This is something that we read in Luke's account. But after scolding Peter, Christ reached down, picked up the servant's ear, and reattached it to his head. So this servant, you know, one minute his head is, is throbbing, his ear is on the ground, and the next minute his pain is gone and his ear is back in its proper place. You know, over and over again, this scene in the garden paints a clear picture for us that although Judas betrayed him and brought guards to arrest him, Christ was not a powerless victim. Let's pick back up in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews 
that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world, and I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus with his hand say, excuse me, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So the Jews charged him, but Christ was not a false Messiah. You know, in, in verse 14, John points back to the high priest's unwitting prophecy about Jesus' death in chapter 11. Remember, Caiaphas told the Sanhedrin, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's far better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Then John adds, he did not say this on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to untie the scattered children of God. And so because God directed the words of the high priest, he said so much more than he understood from his perspective. He was saying, if we want to maintain control, if we want to maintain power, if we want to maintain influence here in Israel, then we have to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. He's causing a stir. The Romans are getting worried. If he continues, our nation will perish under Roman rule. Our nation will be crushed by the Roman army. That's what Caiaphas was saying. But John points out that his words carry far more significance. Because John saw the doctrine of substitution in his words. John saw the heart of the gospel itself in his words. Yes, one man will die. Yes, one man will save a nation. But he will do so much more. His substitutionary atonement on the cross will cover the sins of the nation. And he will untie the scattered children of God. John reminds us that Christ's suffering is part of God's divine plan to rescue humanity from the bondage of sin. As John Calvin wrote, let us remember that the body of the Son of God was bound in order that our souls may be set free from the bonds of sin. Jesus was taking deliberate steps towards His destruction to secure our freedom. And so he was carried to the home of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And now we don't really have time to unfold the complicated history of these two men, but basically, when the Romans took over Jerusalem, they removed Annas as the official high priest. And then they put a few of his sons and relatives in his place, and they were having a lot of turnover, and by the time we get here to AD 33, Caiaphas has been assigned the position. But in the opinion of the Jews, the office of high priest was a lifetime 
appointment. So what we have happening here in a nutshell is that according to the Jews, Caiaphas, or excuse me, according to the Jews, Annas was the high priest. And according to the Romans, Caiaphas was the high priest. And so they come to the house of Annas and they're not bringing a civil case against Christ. They're bringing a religious case against Christ. Look at verse 19. They, they questioned him about his disciples and his teaching. They're looking to build a case for blasphemy. They're attempting to discredit Jesus as a run-of-the-mill false Messiah. So they ask about his teaching. And Jesus answered them in verse 20. He says, I, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So so two things here. Jesus has, has nothing to hide. He's preached in the public square and He stood by His words. You know, nowadays, anytime a candidate runs for office, there's always some tape or or video from years ago that makes them sound just like a complete hypocrite. Well, that doesn't exist with Jesus. Every word that He's ever said is true. And then two, when He told them to ask those who have heard about Me, He was reminding the high priest about the proper procedure of putting Him on trial. Now, under normal circumstances, the court would call witnesses before and against the accused. But he was not getting a fair trial on this night. And we can see that this this, this rebuttal, this this rebuke, angered them because one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand and said, is this how you answer the high priest? And Jesus says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And here's the strongest argument from Jesus. You know what I've preached. You know that I claim to be the Son of God. You know that I claim to be the long-awaited Messiah. You know that I claim to be the light of the world. If I'm wrong, prove it. But if I'm telling the truth, why did you hit me? See, the primary issue is, is truth. Jesus spoke truth and they had no case against Him. When the great pastor and theologian John Stott was a teenager, he was approached by a clergyman named Nash who quoted Pilate to him. He said, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And then he walked away. It's what we call the evangelism tactic of putting a rock in someone's shoe, giving them something to think about. Stott was was puzzled by this comment. It was an entirely new thought to him. It was like asking, what are we going to do with the rain? What are we going to do with with Napoleon? He'd never considered that he would have to do something with Jesus. But this small seed planted by this clergyman would sprout and grow in the heart of Stott and he would become one of the greatest gospel preachers of the 20th century. And it all started with a question. What are you going to do with Jesus? 
And that's essentially John's question for the high priest and and for all of us. What are you going to do with this sinless man? What are you going to do with this blameless man? What are you going to do with the one who was with God and is God? What are you going to do with the Word who became flesh? What are you going to do with Him? And as the temperature rose, Christ continued to remain in complete control. But we see in the rest of our passage that Peter didn't fare quite as well. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And skip down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and once, and at once a rooster crowed. So finally, Christ was denied by Peter, but he was not a, a lonely martyr. So Peter and another disciple, who most believed to be John, the author of this gospel, follow the mob back to the home of the high priest. And when they arrive, John walked right in. He was connected enough to be granted access into the house. And once he was inside, he sent for his friend. He sent the servant girl who was watching the door to go and get Peter. And when she gets over to Peter, she asks, aren't you one of this man's disciples also? Now this isn't necessarily a threatening question. She knew that John was one of his disciples, and so she assumed Peter was too. But nevertheless, Peter panicked and replied, I'm not. And he remained outside and warmed himself by this charcoal fire. And in verse 25, we see practically the same conversation. Aren't you with him? I'm not. Then in verse 26, one of the relatives of the man who Peter attacked asked, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied any association with Jesus for a third time in a rooster crow. We see in the other Gospels that Peter even speaks in stronger terms than this. He calls down a curse on himself if he's, if he's lying. And according to Luke's Gospel, at this exact moment when Peter denies him for the third time and the rooster crows, Christ turned and looked at Peter. Could you imagine locking eyes with a person who you've just finished throwing under the bus? And so Peter was devastated. He left and he whipped, he wept bitterly. He ran back to his former life. Of course, we know the Lord was not done with Peter. 
We know he'd become the rock of the early church. We know he would preach with power and conviction. We know he'd face intense persecution and die by crucifixion himself. We know Peter had a bright future ahead, but on this night he stood condemned as a coward. On this night, he turned his back on his friend. On this night, he abandoned his teacher. But we shouldn't feel bad for Jesus because every bit of this was part of his plan. Back in chapter 13, he predicted Peter would deny him three times. Once again, John is building the case for the sovereignty of Jesus. He was sovereign over his his, betray- his own betrayal, trial, and death. Every moment was orchestrated by Him. But much of the world doesn't see it this way. In 1906, Albert Schweitzer published a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus and he had a vastly different interpretation of the death of Jesus. He wrote, there's silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in knowledge that He is coming, Son of Man lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. But it refuses to turn and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and it crushes him. The wheel rolls onward in the mangled body of the immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual rule of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. See, Schweitzer fell into the large camp of people who would categorize Jesus Christ of Nazareth as a helpless victim, a false Messiah, and a lonely martyr. For them, his story is nothing more than a fascinating tale of the rise and fall of an incredible teacher in the first century. And we shouldn't be surprised After all, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus Christ was an innocent man who suffered intense persecution and died on a cross. But He was no victim. He was our completely sovereign Savior. He wasn't surprised or alarmed or caught off guard by any of the events of this night because He was born to die. His sacrificial death was the primary reason He took on human life in the first place. His sacrificial death was the pinnacle of human history. His sacrificial death paved the path for you and I to regain fellowship with a holy God. So church family, what are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you for um, 
the ways that your your spirit illuminated this text for me this week and, and gave some fresh perspective on it and allowed me to see it in, in, in new light. Father, we know that Christ was not a helpless victim, that He was not a false Messiah, that He was not a lonely martyr. The only way that we can, can comprehend what John is showing us in his gospel is that Christ was a completely sovereign Savior who lived a perfect life, who died a brutal death, and who rose from the grave on the third day. Father, we can simplify the gospel in three words. Jesus in my place. So Father, I thank you that you loved us first and you sent your Son for us. And so Father, I pray this question, what are you going to do with Jesus, would, would rest on our hearts this morning. And maybe a better way to ask it for those who are already in Christ is, what are you doing with Jesus? Because Lord, we also don't want our faith to be this sort of settled science where we, 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 we just punch our ticket to heaven and then we sit with our arms folded for the rest of our lives because that is just staring at the glory of God through a keyhole and we don't want to be there either. So Father, help us to see Christ for what He truly is. Our completely sovereign Savior. Thank You for the One who took on flesh. Thank You for the light of the world. Thank You for the suffering servant. Thank You for Your Son. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.